Eight summers ago, it seems a, a long time ago, I spent uh, a summer in the United States of America. It was not for pleasure, unfortunately, but for business. And for four months, I had the unenviable task, I think, of working as a door-to-door salesman in the United States. It was a tough job. And it was something I'd never done before. So I was very glad when they said to us, we're going to give you a week's training. Uh, They flew us into Nashville in Tennessee, uh, which sounds quite glamorous, but we never saw an inch of it because for seven days, from 7 a.m. in the morning till 7 p.m. every night, we had wall-to-wall training and preparation uh, to learn how to, to sell. And over this time, the main method was that we, we spent time with very experienced salespeople. Folks who were very successful at what they did, and we monitored them as they did practice sessions, and then we tried to, to imitate some of the things that they did. Well, by the end of the, of the week, we were just raring to go. You can just imagine, there's been nothing but sales, sales, sales. We were just looking for a door to chat. However, to my frustration, we had to wait a little bit longer. Because first of all, we had to relocate. In our case, we went north to the state of Illinois. We had to find accommodation for ourselves. And then once we had settled in, when we got on to the job, we had to spend another three days just following someone around. Terribly frustrating. And again, we, we watched that experienced instructor in a, a real-time situation and we, we just soaked in what they were doing. One morning, bleary-eyed at 6 a.m. when the alarm clock went, my boss was standing by my bed and he said the magic words. Today, he said, is your turn. Today's your day. Get ready to go. You're going out by yourself. Well, I can only imagine, therefore, just to a small degree, how it must have felt for the disciples of Jesus. The twelve closest followers of the Lord, who were finally and suddenly called into action. Not not after just a a week and a half of in-house training, but actually after something like a year and a half of being trained, of sitting and waiting, of watching Jesus in ministry. And then one day Jesus said, today is your day. Today is your turn to go. And this remarkable moment, we've just considered it together, we've read about it together, And it is significant for us because as Christians too, we are called into action. Called into action like the disciples. So, it's really vital that we open our Bibles again. Would you please open to Luke chapter 9. As we look at what we can learn from this pivotal moment. What will it mean to be an action man? Or an action woman in God's kingdom? In the 21st century. So look chapter 9. The first 27 verses give us the response. And I'd like us to divide it into three sections. 
along the lines of the three main stories in the passage. Three distinct calls into action. So observe with me the first of these in verses 1 to 6. Sent by Jesus. Sent by Jesus. You see, for the first time in this gospel, perhaps for the first time in ministry, in their ministry experience, the disciples are made to understand that their ministry extends outward. They are not just to huddle with Jesus, but they are to be sent out into the world. In an unparalleled and in an unprecedented way, Jesus sends them out. Just look at what he did in verses 1 to 3. He called them together, verse 1, and he gave them power and authority. He gathered them and then he, he granted them authority over demons and disease. And then, verse 2, he sent them out to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. Now, the observant will notice something fairly obvious as we've been studying Luke's gospel. This is precisely what Jesus has been doing to this point. In the region of Galilee, Jesus' ministry has had this twin focus. He's been preaching the kingdom on the one hand, and he's been healing the sick on the other. But now, it's as if he were saying, after watching me do it, now it is your turn. Up until this point, I've done the ministry alone. Now, I am delegating authority to you. What a seminal moment it must have been for these disciples. And therefore, I'm sure that they were very glad when Jesus gave them uh, a set of instructions to go along with this call. So look at what Jesus said in verses 3 to 5. He gave plenty of specific instructions to guide them. He says, first of all, travel light. Take nothing, verse 3, for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. This is not something my mother would have approved of uh, when she used to send me out on summer mission trips. It was kind of the opposite to this. You know, have you got enough pairs of shoes? Uh, what about that spear jumper? Is it in the bag? Plenty of money. Uh, Jesus says just the opposite here, doesn't he? Forget about the extra piece of hand luggage for the plane. As if you could take it on board anyway. Just get on board. Take yourself along. Leave the practicalities to God. That's what he's essentially saying. And in relation to this, travel light, secondly, he says, stay put. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. You know, if you get to the house where you're staying and the people invite you in and the decor is not very hot, uh, or they don't give you the fully cooked English breakfast that you like, don't go looking for the nice hotel down the road. Be content, stay put, eat the burnt toast. The bed's a bit hard, tough on your back. Gospel ministry is not about your comfort. It's about the crisis people are in and the need for them to hear the message. But, but what should we do, Jesus? You know, what if they kick us out? Well, in that case, if they send you away by their choice, then leave decisively. That's the third thing he says. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Don't stay where you're not wanted. Move on. 
And as you cross the town boundary, he says something that sounds a bit strange to us, shake the dust off your feet. Uh, this was something that, that Jews did when they were traveling through Gentile areas. A Gentile country, when they came back into the promised land, they would dust themselves off, getting rid of the uncleanness. And it was symbolically saying, you know, that town, it's an unclean place. It's a place where the forgiveness of God has not yet reached. They've rejected the message. Do that, he says, when you leave the town. Now, just a little footnote before we leave uh, these specific instructions. It's important to say this. Of course, these were situation-specific instructions. These were time-specific instructions to these disciples. They they are not universally applicable. Uh, If you were flyering, as some of you were, out on Prince's Street for the festival last week, and ladies, if you had a handbag with you, you were not disobeying Jesus' command, or, uh, you know, if you had an extra coat or something like that. And the reason we know this is because later in this same gospel, Jesus sends out these same disciples with different instructions. In fact, opposite instructions. In chapter 22, verse 36, listen to this. But now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Take things with you, Jesus orders. Saddle up. You're going to need things. See, the situation here was very different. This was just before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. The disciples are going to be in danger. They're going to have to be on the move. They may need protection. The situation is different. They need different instructions, different resources. But in this case, the instructions are very clear. And with these instructions, what Jesus said, and with the prior commission, what Jesus did, the only unanswered question is now, will the disciples obey? Will they stay or will they go? Look at verse 6. The action they took. They set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. If you do a deep exegesis of this verse, it tells you that they did what they were told. They were sent out, verses 1 to 5, and they, they, they went out as instructed. That's The summary of these verses. Which, by the way, is parallel very much to our situation today. You see, the tidal rhythm of church life remains imperative. You know, we're uh, staying now down in Cramond. And uh, you may know Cramond Island down there. And you can walk out to that. But you, you need to look at the tide charts to make sure you don't get caught there. Tides coming in and coming out. And there's this rhythm. And so it should be with the church. There should be this gathering together. This coming in. But there should also be this, this going out. Regularly there should be this pattern. Surely we know this as a church. That, that church does not begin and end at 11am on a Sunday morning and 8pm on a Sunday night. Church also begins when we go out of the doors at the end of the service. And yet some churches act, and I don't mean to be unkind, but some churches act as if Matthew 28 reads, you know the Great Commission? Huddle together. 
and preach the gospel to a few unchurched people who may be present. It actually says, by the way, go into the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Because you see, mission is mainly done out there. A few years ago, I, I was um, involved in Christian uh, radio presenting. I was fairly awful at it. And uh, very inexperienced. Uh, one of the early programs, we were chit-chatting, me and one of the other people on the program, and I mistakenly referred to the listeners as being out there. You know, the folks out there. And uh, in the next break, the producer came in and said, very graciously, but pretty sternly, uh, never refer to the listeners as out there. Okay? They're not out there. They're in here with you. This is an intimate conversation. Well, you know, as good a direction as that is for radio, I don't think that's good advice for Christians. To never speak. To never think. To never discuss the people out there. How are we doing out there, folks? Let's have a discussion about that with somebody later on this evening. How are we getting on with the mission field on our doorstep? How goes your ministry in the office community? In the mothers and toddlers group? In the neighborhood? The school you attend or you, or you teach at? The family network? The, the special interest group? You see, that's the mission field. That's the place that Jesus has sent you to today. These are, listen to this, these are extensions of Charlotte Chapel's ministry. How are you doing out there? There's a question to ask each other after the service. And maybe a few of us will be a little embarrassed because there's not much happening on that front. Well, that's the first call to action sent by Jesus. Are you, do you have that sent mentality these days? But secondly, notice the disciples are serving through Jesus. That's the second story. Serving through him. And I've worded that very precisely. Serving through Jesus. You'll see why as we go. Because no sooner did the disciples uh, return from their mission. In fact, notice um, in verse 10. Notice that they're not called the disciples any longer. For the first time, they're called apostles. Apostles means sent ones. They've been on the mission field. Well, no sooner had the apostles returned than unexpectedly and inconveniently, they are summoned into action again. As so often happens in ministry, it doesn't rain, but it pours. And they're called into action at an inconvenient moment. See, the disciples are, are evidently tired from their experience. If you've been on a mission trip for a couple of weeks, you'll know the feeling. And Jesus, aware of their needs, as he always is, takes them away to a remote place. They go on a sort of team retreat to relax, presumably, and to debrief about how they've got on. Well, if they're looking for a siesta, they're about to be gate-crashed. Because due to Jesus' popularity, the throwing crowds are anxious to see Jesus, and through some method, they find out where Jesus is, and they come in their droves. Now, just imagine, imagine that you were one of the disciples. And you're weary. I can think about what my unsanctified response might be. Um, 
Is there nowhere we can get five minutes with the Master? Can't we get a little sleep here? I wonder if some of them were sleeping when the 5,000 came. Must we always have these needy folks around, you know, needing help, ministry? I would have been a grumpy camper, I think. But if that's what they thought, Jesus thought very differently. He welcomed them, verse 11, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed healing. Always full of compassion, Jesus was. And of course, that's fair enough for a little while. For a little bit of time. But later on in the afternoon, time's drawing on and the disciples seek to draw the line. And they make uh, to Jesus what on the surface seems like a, a reasonable request. It may even be a compassionate request, actually. Send the crowd away, they suggest, so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. I mean, there's 5,000 men here, Jesus. Not even to mention the women and the children. And it's a, it's a remote place. And it's getting late. And they're getting hungry. Let's just send them away, cut our losses. They'll go to the nearby guest houses or hotels or whatever they had, and they'll get a good bed and breakfast and come back in the morning. Reasonable enough? No, says Jesus. You give them something to eat. He's joking, isn't he? Uh, Lord, to feed these people, we would need to use either A, our own resources, and we've only got five loaves and two fish. Or B, we would need to go to the nearest town and we need to buy resources. I mean, is Greg's even open at three o'clock in the afternoon? You know, do, do they even have 5,000 loaves? Maybe a few pies at three o'clock. But, uh... And yet with inadequate resources, Jesus is adamant that they will serve these people. They will do it. Set them down in groups of 50 each. Now, here's the litmus test once again. Will the disciples obey? Will the disciples think, this is just a crazy idea? Well, look at verse 15. The action they took... The disciples did so. And everyone sat down. And then it happened, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. The amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 happens. It's not even explicitly given, it's just implied. Now, what does this teach us? What, what is Luke teaching us particularly in the story of the feeding of the 5,000? I think two things, two main things. Number one, the miracle teaches, as all miracles do, about who Jesus is. Right? I mean, who can do such a miracle? Last week we heard on this platform a chef from the OM ship. And he was telling us about how he feeds 300 people. Three times a day. Absolutely amazing. We thought that was miraculous, right? 5,000 people. Who can resource such a feast as this? Well, the Jews knew. The Jews understood if you knew your Jewish history, only God could do such a thing. Back in the days of the Exodus, way back in their history, in the wilderness, again, 
Interestingly, God had provided manna for the people in the desert. He had rained down bread from heaven. God provides that kind of miracle. And yet here is Jesus. And his miracle is not only similar to that, but it actually in many respects surpasses that miracle. Why, in the days of of Moses, there was just enough bread. Do you remember the story? There was just enough for every individual and every family. Just enough, no more. Jesus here provides a surplus. There's much more than than is needed. Twelve basketfuls. Who is this man? No wonder King Herod was asking that question, as we read in the earlier section. So that's the first thing we learn about. Luke is leading us along to to think about this. Who is Jesus? Who is he? We're going to come back to that. But it also teaches us something about how disciples serve. How disciples serve. Jesus had asked his disciples to do something. He said, you give them something to eat. And, And remember, they couldn't understand. How was this service possible? They thought they had considered all the options with this. It was either one of two things. It was either their resources or it was the resources of other people. And what they had failed to consider, even think about, was that they could serve these people through Jesus' resources. That's what they missed. Through Jesus' power. Lord, we can't do it. Sure, you can in your own strength, but you will do it, even as I provide the bread which you will serve. That's a, that's a dynamic that every Christian needs to know, both in theory and in experience. Not only that we're called to serve, but that we are called to serve in the power of Jesus, with the resources of Jesus. You remember how the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 4.11. He said that if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Who serves? You serve. If anyone serves. But who provides? God provides. With the strength he provides. When you serve, God strengthens you for the task that is laid before you. So when God calls you to teach a classroom of children on a Sunday morning and uh, you're wondering how on earth am I going to, to get the gospel through to this little busy crowd of people. The how is through his power. He's going to do it through you. Through your feeble efforts, sure. But by his spirit, with his resources. Or, or just to come into the context of this passage, when you're ministering to someone's physical needs. Perhaps it's a relative that you have constant attention you're giving to. Or maybe for some of you, it's in the medical profession. And you think, you know, my resources aren't enough to meet their physical needs. You're right. Listen, it's actually a lot worse than you think. You've only got five loads. And the need you face is 5,000 times bigger. But Jesus can make up the difference. He is expert at working his power through your weakness. Uh, Many of you know of John Stott, uh, the the preacher, the Christian writer. Uh, He tells a story 
from a couple of years ago, which I think brings this point home to us. I'll just quote what he, what he writes. It, it was in Australia in June 1958. I was leading a week's mission in the University of Sydney, and we had come to the last day a Sunday. But what Australians call, I had to read this a couple of times, a wog, W-O-G, and the rest of us call a bug, had made a vicious assault upon me and deprived me of my voice. I was speechless. Now, there's limited resources, right? You're the speaker at a really important evangelistic meeting and you don't have a voice. All through the afternoon, I'd been on the point of telephoning somebody to the effect that they must find a substitute preacher. You know, what other towns can we go to 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 fix this out? But I was persuaded not to. At 7.30, half an hour before the meeting, I was waiting in a side room. Some of the students were praying with me and I whispered the request to the chairman to read the thorn in the flesh verse from 2 Corinthians 12. And the conversation between Jesus and Paul came alive. Paul, I beg you to take it away from me. Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for when I am weak, then I am strong. After reading, John Stock continues, I walk to the platform and all I can say is that I croaked the gospel through the microphone in a monotone. All the while I was crying to the Lord to fulfill his promise, perfect his power through weakness. At the end of the straightforward invitation on coming to Christ, I issued the invitation. There was an immediate and reasonably large response. I've been back to Australia seven or eight times since then, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember the 1958 mission in the University Great Hall when you had lost your voice? I came to Christ that night. You see, Christ, Christ can take your five loaves. He can take John Stott's five loaves. You maybe think he's really gifted. He was totally inadequate. And God can feed other people through your ministry. You know, maybe someone here, maybe we need to hear that tonight. Maybe we feel that what we have to give is not much, it's not sufficient. Maybe we're thinking of dropping out of the ministry that we are involved in as we come up to a new year. God can use you. Christ can work through you. So this is the second call to action, serving through Jesus. Now, let's come to the third and the final point. You see, even as we do all this, there is a warning that must be added for us. Even as we're sent on mission, even as we serve through Jesus' resources, Jesus says it will not be an easy ride. So here's the third and final aspect of what it means to be called into action. Suffering with Jesus. Uh, when I was working as a salesperson, I was told beforehand and then discovered by experience that to follow in the footsteps of these experienced salesfolk was going to make me a very unpopular person. Growling dogs, slamming doors, the occasional thrown object uh, did come my way. But, you know, it, it was par for the course if I took that line. That profession. Jesus says, listen, if you would follow me, if you would be sent out by me, if you would serve through me, I'm going to be open and honest with you. 
I'm not going to put this in the small print, but in big, bold letters, suffering will be involved. That's what you can expect. And the reason you can expect this is related to who you are following, who I am. You see, the kind of person you follow is one who by nature is prone to being scorned and rejected. And he begins this discussion in, in, in uh, this section by asking, who do the people say that he is? Who do the crowds say I am? Well, the disciples really lay a, a rag bag of answers. You know, Elijah's returned. Some say that you're one of the prophets resurrected. Some say that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. All sorts of things, Jesus. But what about you, he asks. See, there's the heart of it. Who do you say I am? Verse 20. Forget the media. Forget the polls. Forget your pals. Who do you say I am? That is incidentally still the critical question. Who do you say? Who do you say? And Peter replies... Probably on behalf of all the disciples, you are the Christ of God. You are Israel's long promised king. He was right. In fact, Peter was so right that Jesus says to him, Don't tell anyone about this. He strictly warns them, Don't tell. Probably because it would have caused a public upheaval if people had got wind of this at this point. And yet, he says, as as correct as you are, that I am the Messiah, you really don't fully understand what kind of Messiah I am. You see, the disciples uh, thought, as their Jewish contemporaries did, that the Messiah would be a figure who would gain instant victory over God's enemies. And who would immediately be bestowed with honor and glory. But no, says Jesus, I need to tell you, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Not their idea of a Messiah. And on the third day be raised to life, verse 22. He says, the immediate road ahead for me is suffering. A road of suffering. And what is more, Here's the really shocking thing. Following behind me, once I'm taking the lead, he adds, will be you. You too will suffer denying self and suffering daily. I mean, what an advert for discipleship. Jesus, give us the pitch in 20 words or less. It's 19 words, actually. I've got it. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's discipleship. Anyone up for the job? The disciple must forget living for himself and be prepared to die every day. And if we say, Jesus, that's a hard ask, Jesus would say to us, you should see the cross I have to bear. I will carry a cross literally for the sins of the world. You will carry one symbolically. And sometimes physically too, for the sake of the kingdom. Now, let's just be clear about the nature of the suffering involved here. You see, there's a popular misconception. This suffering is very specifically the suffering that comes because we are Christians, because we are Christ ones, followers of Jesus. 
See, this isn't, we've all got our aches and pains, you know. We've all got our cross to bear. You hear all sorts of people saying that. They mean that, you know, we've got aches and pains, difficulties, problems in our lives. And maybe in one sense that is true, but in the sense that Jesus means it, this cross is not for everybody. Unbelievers don't bear this cross. It is only for the anyone's who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who come after Him. You bear this cross when you identify yourself with Jesus Christ and you pay for it. It's a cross that you take up, not just because of circumstance, you know, something happens to you. You take it up intentionally, daily. You put it on your back, as it were. You're willing to pay the price because people know you're a Christian and what you believe. It's not easy. I mean, the, the, the picture clearly shows us that. It, it can't be nice. As someone was telling me this week, it can't be nice to be at the door of the festival outreach, handing out flyers and to have people laughing in your face because you're promoting Christian nonsense. Right? You know, we shrug, can shrug that kind of thing off. But it's not pleasant. But I'm pretty sure that person I spoke to, that they had very deliberately said to themselves, you know, I'm going to expect that. I'm going to get that, but I'm going to do it anyway. And maybe in reflection, they also thought, Jesus got that. And much more. Amy Carmichael, the hymn writer, I think had the right kind of prayer in one of her hymns. From subtle love of softening things. From easy choices, weakenings. Nor thus our spirits fortified. Not this way went the crucified. From all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Lord, keep me from easy choices, comfortable situations. Lord, help me to take up my cross today. There's a prayer we can pray every morning. And as you do, It's not all doom and gloom. As you do, remember that your sufferings are not in vain. They're not easy, but they're not in vain. This is a theme that's come up in so many passages recently, I've noticed. There will be compensations for serving and suffering with Jesus. And there's two that he mentions in this particular passage. One, you may lose the world, but you won't forfeit your soul. You may lose every material blessing, In this life. But your spirit will be secure. After that day. On that day when you die. Other people. They gain the world. But they lose their soul. Not when you follow Jesus. Not when you suffer with Jesus. And moreover. It's not just in the next life. But there's a compensation in this life. Did you notice that too? Secondly. You may die. But you will see the kingdom glory before death. Look at verse 27 for this. I tell you the truth. Some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom. They see the kingdom. Uh, Now, this is a tricky verse. Uh, There have been PhDs spawned trying to explain this verse and making it even more confusing. Uh, For the record, it, it explicitly, or it doesn't tell us explicitly, What the kingdom is that they will see. That's why we're guessing at it. It's certainly not the coming again of Jesus. 
His second coming at the end of history because obviously the disciples have all died before that point. And so it probably refers to the various glimpses of glory of the kingdom's power that they would witness in their lifetime beyond this point, before death. So just in the very next story, James will be looking at this with you next week. They glimpse something of the glory of the kingdom as they climb the mountain and Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. And of course we think of the, not the death of Jesus, but the resurrection and the ascension and the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out. When they saw the kingdom coming in its power. You see, when they would glimpse these things, when they would see heaven open, as it were, at these moments, they would know that their sufferings were worth it. Oh, for such glimpses, even today, as we read God's Word. And as by God's Spirit we gain an insight, as we see something more into the power and the reality of the kingdom of God, which will one day come in all of its fullness. Well, we're just coming to conclude at this point. And I want you to notice just something interesting as we finish. In the previous two points, we've seen together both Jesus' call to action and the disciples' response. He calls, they act. But notice here that, that unlike the two previous incidents, the action they took is a question mark. It is unrecorded. Most likely not because Luke failed to report it, but because the disciples failed to take any in response to this teaching, suffering with Jesus. You see, the disciples' suffering would happen later rather than sooner. First, the Master, Jesus, would suffer. He must first suffer many things, be rejected, be crucified, And he would die on a cross outside of Jerusalem for the sins of the world. He would shed his blood so that you and I this evening, through faith in him, the Lord Jesus, that we might be disciples at all. I wonder if you've accepted Jesus this evening as your Savior, as as your Lord knowing that He is sufficient to to bring you into relationship with God. But if that is so, if that's so, the main challenge is this. Are you a, a couch potato Christian? Or are you an action man or an action woman for Christ? You know, Henry Matisse once suggested And if you're an artist, don't take offense at this because we have some artistic people, but he once said that artists should have their tongues cut out. You can see what artists are about is is creating something on a canvas, painting something. They're people of action, not words. Well, that might not be the best idea for Christians because we need creeds on our lips as well as deeds in our lives. But, you know, we do need to do more than just talk the walk. Charlotte Chapel, are we embracing this call to action? Is there more that we should be doing, particularly in the world around us? At the end of this festival, as it's coming to a close, what next? What now? 
Or are we a church that just talks a good game? Let's pray.